The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story-slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. Reaping was gone by. Huntress Moon grew pale, waxed again, and pulled her bow. The first gales of wide earth came howling in from the west. And just when it seemed he might not come after all, the Barry Covenanter blew into the village of Tree on one of those cold winds, astride his tall black horse and as thin as Tom's scrawny death. His heavy black cloak flapped around him like a bat wing. Beneath his wide hat, as black as his cloak, the pale lamp of his face turned ceaselessly from side to side, marking a new fence here, a cow or three added to a herd there. The villagers would grumble, but pay, and if they couldn't pay, their land would be taken in the name of Gilead. Perhaps even then, in those olden days, some were whispering it wasn't fair, the taxes were too much, that Arthur Eld was long dead if he had even ever existed at all, and the covenant had been paid a dozen times over, in blood as well as silver. Perhaps some of them were already waiting for a good man to appear and make them strong enough to say, no more, enough's enough. The world has moved on. Welcome back, fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka, our seventh Wheel of Ka episode. That's crazy. Pretty amazing. Derek here. Steve is here. Hello, hello. So we are ready to talk winds through the keyhole. Yeah. Book 4.5? Yeah, this is, I mean, technically it's book eight, but it happens between books four and five. Yeah, I think, so obviously, if you've been following us on the Path of the Beam, you know what this is all about. If you're just tuning in and this is your first Wheel of Ka, you need to go back to episode one and work your way through it and hopefully read a book or two along with us. Definitely. We debated whether or not we're going to go right from book four, Wizard and Glass, to book five, Wolves of the Kala. And we thought about it and we figured it's going to make the most sense for the flow of the podcast to put this in between the two for a few reasons. One, we didn't want to end with this as our last book. We wanted book seven because it is the definitive end of the actual story. Right. And two, we had a few fans on Twitter request us do it in this order. Yeah, and you can't you can't not listen to the fans. Fuck you know? yeah, because we have the best fans out there. <laughs> Which is amazing. I love that somebody requested that we do it this way. Absolutely. Which I think has been an interesting challenge, you know, because I've I, I really enjoy this book, but it was interesting to read it in this context, and we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to put myself out there. The first time I did the Dark Tower series, before I got connected to the Dark Tower uh, community online writ large, I didn't know this book existed. Mm. Oh, interesting. And I didn't read this book until this read-through. Well, you want to know, I mean, I'll give a little history. I haven't gotten to do this in a while. Please do. But, so this book was written in 2009. So actually, only a decade ago, and it, it came out, the, the final book, I believe, came out in 2004, and then this was King five years later revisiting the Tower series and basically giving some love to the fans and giving some love to the characters he spent five years away from. Absolutely. So it's, it's most certainly a love letter, that's for sure. And I think when you read the intro, Stephen King is just like, he was surprised that he wanted to come back to these yeah. characters. Yeah. Like he discovered the story inside himself 
and there's obviously a huge community of Dark Tower fans. Mm-hmm. Why not give them another story if he had another story to tell? You know what else is interesting, too? I, I actually read this this morning and doing a little more research prior to this because I I didn't know much about this book prior to reading it either. I mean, I read it the first time, but it was pretty quickly. And by that point, I had sort of been over the series. I had spent two and a half years of reading the whole thing, and I was like, I'm, I'm just a little tired. But I found out that King actually wrote this book because there was a ton of backlash to the end of the seventh book. People didn't like the way it ended. And he, it kind of, it stuck with him, and it he toiled over it for like three or four years and went back and rewrote the story. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Okay, that's and we don't insane. have to talk about that at all because we'll wait till we get to the seventh book. But I thought that was really interesting. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what? And it makes sense hearing that now, having read the book, that he wanted to maybe right a wrong and give the fans a type of really sort of tight, cathartic ending. Because my the one word I would use to describe the emotional through line in this book is catharsis. Oh, sure. But before we get there, I don't want to forget to do this. If you're listening to us here, you're obviously a fan of the Wheel of Ka, you're a fan of the Midnight Myth, go to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Support us on Patreon um, if you're so inclined. If you do, thank you. Those that are supporting us, we love you. You'll get extra content. Hit us up on Twitter, at the Midnight Myth, Facebook, Instagram, all that shit. And uh, we have some really amazing, really cool Wheel of Ka yeah. Dark Tower theme merch on our. And as website. I was going to say, Laurel has spent a lot of time and has really kicked ass. And there's some really cool stuff. I drink out of my Wheel of Ka mug almost every morning. I go between that and my Batman Joker mug. Those are my two. I can't. I cannot fault you <laughs> for cycling the Wheel of Ka mug out for the Batman Joker. Oh mug. yeah, come on. I that mean, makes tons of sense. You know, it's the greatest thing I ever got at Gateway Forty Six. Or is it 42? I forget. Down in Wildwood, New Jersey. Wow. It's the greatest thing. Call out to Wildwood, New Jersey (laughs) here. You know, because you, you know, like you ever like go down there, total tangent, but you spend a bunch of money and it's like usually shit and crap. You just walk out with a bunch of candy. And when you're, I was like, wow, look at this kick-ass Batman mug. And it's, it's been, it's been a good choice. That's freaking fantastic. Thank you. All right. Win through the keyhole. We've done, we've started these off fairly similar um, how you feeling? How you feeling about the book? Give okay. me your general impression of it. Okay. Um, yeah, hit sure. me with it. So, you know, this was, it was tough to read the book in between books four and five. First, I'll say I really enjoy the book. It's masterful storytelling. It's really great to get a little bit of catharsis with Roland's story, a little bit of closure with certain things in his story. I think the two things that were odd for me threw me off. One, it's obviously meant to be read after the seventh book. There, it, that couldn't be more clear to me. It's not book four and a half. It's book eight that happens between books four and five. So that threw me off. Honestly, it took me... I mean, you guys went away on vacation for like two weeks... And I might have picked the book up two or three times. Which, uh, pardon us, we're sorry we're late with this episode. Yeah. It's our fault, Laurel and I. We went on vacation fault. to Europe. Yeah, it was like Europe. It's yeah. fucking kick ass. Are you kidding me? But anyway, continue. But so, so you know, I I feel a little mixed this time around. This is the first time I felt like meh about sitting in this chair and talking about this book because 
I don't feel like I should be talking about it yet. But here we are. So I'm going to do my best to be as positive as humanly possible. I feel mixed up. I do. I feel a little confused because it's like, it's such a cool story and there's a cool story within a story and then we get a fucking story within a story within a story and it's total meta and it's total Stephen King, but it's, it's book eight. And so it, it confused me a little bit, but I feel good now that I'm here and right. starting to process through it. I will tell you my experience of the book it really took to when Roland was telling the story of Little Tim in Tree sure. for me to start to really love this book. Yeah, because in the beginning you're like, oh, wait, okay, so now Roland's with a different person. He's not with Cuthbert and Elaine. He's with this other guy who like doesn't really trust him. And you're like, okay, this is they're on a mission. That's pretty cool. There's a werewolf reptile <laughs> right, skin like, changer. Which is awesome. Which is cool. So the first part of it, when you see Eddie, Roland, Susanna, and they're trying to get shelter from the, the Stark blast, it definitely felt like this part of the story didn't really belong in between. Right. It felt like that we're re- King is really writing this after having written the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Because to in the way that I look at it, the end of Wizard and Glass, where you have all of Roland's new quartet who finally see, finally see Roland as a whole and complete human being. They know like Roland's been in their minds. He knows the ins and outs. He has literally helped resurrect Jake from death, mm-hmm. you know, and created and shared a paradoxical time experience, but he was still such a stranger to them. Now that they are, have all shared in his past trauma and they've all seen it and they've seen it very well. Say, thank you, Sai. We get to this point where like, okay, they have to get shelter for a storm. Now that doesn't feel like what comes next. Right. What comes next is the fucking adventure. (laughs) Yeah, right. We're moving on. Oh, there's a storm. You know, Uh, and, and like I said, I, I get it. It's just, it was, it was difficult. And I think it's good. I think it's good that it's difficult because we've been on a fucking roll. We've been like, this book series is amazing. There haven't been any bumps. We haven't gotten the song of Susanna yet. <laughs> but like, this is the first time. And I think it is due to the context that we were like, hey, let's do, somebody wants us to do this and we want to honor that. So thank you, whomever that was. This has been a really excellent challenge for me. You know, it's forced me to like, I mean, I had trouble. I literally had trouble. I, I would go like a week and not read. And then like, oh man, I made this commitment. I can't not do this to Derek. I can't not do this to King. I can't do this to myself. And like, I'd pick it up and read it for like 45 minutes. And I'm like, that was fun. That was fun. Whereas the first four books, I can't put it down. And so I think it's an unfair criticism to say that I didn't like the book because I do like the book but I don't like it in this position. I think if we had read it at the end, I'd have a very different opinion. Oh yes. I totally feel you on that. That being said, you know, like, how do you feel? Well, it was hard for me to really care about Jamie, you know, and it was hard for me to really care about this mission Mm -hmm. that they're being sent to go fight the skin changer. When Roland starts telling the story to protect every, while they're getting shelter from the Stark blast. And the reason it was hard for me to really care, it's like, I know they're all dead. I know it's going to fall. And I know that 
Roland killed his mother. What else am I going to learn about Roland here? Right. What What else am I going to learn about Jamie? He's dead already. That's the first time really Jamie's been mentioned. He's mm-hmm. been, his name has been dropped here and there before, but it's not like Cuthbert and Elaine. Right. Who Roland is constantly thinking about, in particular Cuthbert. And he's also not that interesting. He's just kind of like he's there. He's vanilla. He's just a new character. Yeah, I think he has a birthmark on his hand. That's the most right. interesting thing. I love he said he's vanilla. <laughs> yeah, like, he is. And, you know, I didn't care too much for the town all that much because we've seen so many Western towns on the bridge of collapse. But when Roland is with young Bill mm-hmm. and young Bill is in the prison cell and Roland starts telling him the story of winds through the keyhole, that's the point to me where I think the book took on life. That was the point where I got really interested. From that point on, I burned through this book in sure. like sure. like seven days. Yeah. I read the rest of it and because I couldn't put it down because I was so interested in, in a few aspects. So I'll lay out why I really liked it. Aspect number one, you mentioned the meta-ness. I've been researching a little bit about meta-storytelling. And if you guys out there listening want to click like, 20-minute refresh of what meta-storytelling is. There's this amazing YouTube channel called Wisecrack, and they did a meta-fiction in film, and they trace it from the origins of film towards today and all the different levels of meta-film. But when a story goes meta, it is the story referencing a story. Any type of story that it references could be considered meta. In particular, we see in this Uh, and King and a trend that we see in a lot of fiction, self-referential meta. You're referencing that you are a story. You're referencing that there's a story within a story. So here we have Stephen King writing a story about his quartet who get trapped in a storm. And then the main character, Roland, tells a story about his past where the character in the past then tells his story to another character about uh, yet another character in the past. So there's these layers of meta storytelling that I pondered on. I thought, what is King really telling us about narrative and about storytelling in general? Mm -hmm. One of my like central thesis thoughts on this book and why I think this book is very important and why it makes sense now hearing that this was supposed to be the ending because the fans were disappointed is that he uses meta in my view to bring about a catharsis. Catharsis is an old word, comes about from Aristotle. He coined it, as far as we know, in a work of philosophy called Poetics, where he was writing about the philosophy of theater. And the idea is that you as a audience member have a feeling and a feeling that gives you an emotional release when you go to the theater. And I don't say catharsis in some part for me as a viewer, but really from these characters. So we have Roland... In the main Roland, the main story, before he starts telling other stories, Roland that's old with Susanna, Eddie, Jake, and Oi, who at the very end admits that he does forgive his mother. That is the catharsis that he needs to bring closure to the story with him and his mother and the fact that he killed his mom, Mm -hmm. that he is able to forgive her through telling these stories. Then you have young Bill, who needs a, an emotional release after watching his father, all of his friends and the ranch get murdered by this br- like brutal monster feels a catharsis so that he can feel calm and at ease and pass the time before his job to point out who the murderer is murderer is. Pardon me. And then you have young Tim's catharsis 
who needs to feel to get over the emotions of his father having been murdered, his mother having been beaten to the point of being blind, and this incredibly dangerous adventure that he needs to go through in this, the hopes, like the like crazy long shot odds that he might be able to help his mother, which he's able to eventually do. Mm-hmm. All of these layers are telling me one thing. Stories make you feel, and they are the most powerful when they make you feel. Mm-hmm. And all of these characters are telling these stories because they need to feel something. Mm-hmm. And that feeling, whether that is safety in young Bill, um, whether that is... Uh, victory over odds and and being able to help your mother in young Tim, or whether that's being able to forgive a person who wronged your family so much, it led to a fucking matricide and had to feel these emotions. And when Roland finally says yes to Susanna at the end of the book, it's the first time in reading the whole series. I shed a few tears because I'm like, holy shit. Roland forgives his mom, mm-hmm. not himself, but his mom. Can I ask you a question about that? Please. Do you think that Roland's able to access this emotional well and tell the story to comfort of young Tim to comfort young Bill mm-hmm. because of Jake? Because he's learned how to actually love another person again. You know, we've seen Roland. Very few times crack a joke, crack a smile. But more and more, as we move along in the book, his relationship with Jake, you know, we talked a while ago about his relationship with Jake being father and son, his relationship with Eddie Eddie being uncle and nephew. And I feel like one of the things King tries to illustrate in this book at this point in time is that because we're going back and it's between four and five, it's like, look, Roland has learned emotions through this content and is able to process a story as emotional as this and actually feel something from it and being able to comfort another child. Do you think that has to do with Jake or? Yes. You know, and you had said something in our pre podcast discussion was that like, Hey, is young Tim kind of also in, in, can we interpret that young Tim as a young role in a certain way? And we discussed that if you were to look at, when one tells a narrative from the perspective of psychoanalysis, a psychoanalysis would tell a narrative very much like a dream is filled with artifacts of one's subconscious Sure, where we create these aspects of the story and we fill them with both our super ego, our ego and our id, mm-hmm. which is means our conscious and our unconscious mind. And in a way I feel like both of these boys in particular, young Tim in the village of tree Feels like Jake to me. Mm, feels like yeah. a young Jake Definitely. more more than a young Roland. Interesting. It has the curiosity. Mm-hmm. It has the tenacity. It has the seriousness, the deep well of emotion, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the ruthless killer. Right. You know, sure. that a young Roland would have. It sure. feels very much like a young Jake. And I feel like if Roland is putting part of his story into the story as he's telling it, that... These boys both really, to me, represent Jake, which is a long way of saying, I agree with you. Yeah, sure. I sure. really do sure. agree with you. I think I think you can't undersell where Roland's at at this point as a character and how he has developed. You can't uncouple that with Jake. Because mm-hmm. if there's one character that has helped, hurt, propelled, or pummeled 
Roland's development into becoming at least some semblance of a not miserable, ruthless fuck. It's Jake. Yeah, and I think Eddie's tested his patience, and I think Eddie has brought out certain aspects of Roland's character, but I do think when it comes to the emotional well and to the empathy of Roland, which is really a really a word we have to use loosely because he's really not an empathetic person at all. Nope. I mean, I, they're not built to be. He's a fucking soldier. But I do think the moments where he is showing empathy are, are with young boys who he sees a lot of himself in. And, and as, I, as we get further in the story, I think Roland does see a lot of himself in Jake. And thus, you know, when we have this whole story about young Tim, I mean, Christ, the kid becomes a fucking gunslinger. Well, not really, but he has a gun. And, like, he tries to convince this tribe that he's a gunslinger, but they can read his thoughts, and then they're like, oh, no, you're not one. No, that that sucks. Let me give you this AI bot <laughs> yeah, that will lead you right. directly. Like, this story gets so fucking weird, It's man. so weird. The and Village it, of Tree gets so weird. And that's why I think, like, it... There's a fucking dragon, an actual dragon right. in the story. And that that's why I think it 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 just doesn't feel right right here because we haven't experienced any much of that fantastical world, right? We had Shardik, we had a big fucking mechanical bear, and we've heard about all these guardians of the beam, but now we're we're getting pretty literal. I mean, we're finding out about the eagle and the tiger and Aslan and like all, all these different symbols throughout narrative history are also starting to come up and and i i enjoy it but it just doesn't i feel it's like it's like a new pair of jeans derek it's like putting on a new pair of jeans you gotta wear them for like a month well i'm a fat guy so for me you know it takes like a month and a half to break them in and then they feel good it took me like a month and a half to read this book for it to feel good well i think in, at this point in time i should i should clarify yeah, yeah no then i think it's all very fair and I, I totally hear where you're coming from. I think it's important. The way I read the part of the story where Roland and Roland in fighting the skin changer, young Roland, we'll call him. So we'll have old Roland and young Roland. Sure. Where young Roland is telling the story of wins through the keyhole to young Bill. I read that as this is the gunslinger version of a fairy tale. Mm. This is the gunslinger hobbit. Sure. Right. This is a, a story that draws from all of the mythic, all of the ancient, all of the reservoir of stories and narratives. Mm -hmm. And we have Roland telling this, filling in the details as he goes along. And we know that Roland's a good storyteller because he tells all of Wizard and Glass. Now, real quick, the one of the things that threw me off was the narrative style of Roland telling the story. Because it felt much different than the Roland voice that we have through Wizard and Glass than we do through Wind Through the Keyhole. So you mean, wait, just to clarify, because I yeah, think yeah. I know what you mean. Sure. So you, old Roland telling the story mm -hmm. to his quartet. Correct. Which is written primarily all in the first person. Correct. Well, it's the first time we have a long series of this book, yeah. of any of these books, yeah, in true. the first person. So it is a little jarring. Right. I think, I believe it was you that said Roland seemed a little too elegant. Yeah, he didn't, it didn't seem like simple. You know, I mean, Roland says over and over and over again in the story, look, I'm, I'm a little slow. I'm a little slower than others, but I'm a deadly killer. And in this, he sounds like it's so eloquent. It's so beautifully told that at first I was like, uh, okay, okay, I'll get down with it. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. But it, but it felt uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And it did stick out to me that it didn't feel like in Wizard and Glass, they're literally transported into this story mm-hmm. and they get experiencing a sense of timelessness mm-hmm. that they're there for the exact time. That it's not just a story. They're literally living this with Roland as he's telling it due to the magical power of the thinny right. and the, you know, the wizard rainbow and all of these magical artifacts that have transported them into Roland's past as through the power of his story where this is written. Like he's, this is him word for word. This is what he says. Mm. And it didn't sound a hundred percent consistent with the language. We hear Roland talking to the characters. Normally I, I do agree with you. I can't fault. Like, Stephen oh, King's yeah, no, he's a wordslinger. I right. can't, he I, can't not wordsling. And, you know? and that's where and, that, and that's where I get disappointed in myself. It's like I'm not trying to negatively criticize King. It just and again, I, I keep saying this, but I feel like we have to. It's because we're reading it at the time when it wasn't meant to be read. I mean, think about it, right? Like there are literally 30 to 35 years from book one to this one have have passed. You know, King is a much different writer, even from Wizard and Glass to this. I mean, that's almost 15, 20 years in between those two books. So it's, you know, so I get it. I get it. Yep, absolutely. I totally get it, too. I see where and I I I honestly felt that where I'm like, when I'm first reading this, I'm like, what's not right about this? And it is the the very uh, loquacious you know, very verbal, very beautiful language mm-hmm. of Roland. And I'm like, did that come what? out of his mouth? Does that really come right. out of his mouth? And it also, like, it. I feel like because we feel like it's a love letter to fans of the Dark Tower, that King could take a little bit more liberty in writing it because it had been so long. And you know, you know the phrase that I <laughs> that I always use with this book, and it, it's kind of shitty. But I'm just like, oh, that's nice. This book is nice. It's a nice story. It's nice to see Roland and Eddie and Susanna and Jake, who also don't feel like the characters we've come to know. You know, it just, I feel like we're in a room with the cardboard cutouts of our characters telling us the story. Well, they're in the book for so little. Right. They're just like, they're just listening. Yeah. They eat a popkin. The fucking, I will say one thing. I do appreciate that we get, a little bit more magic about Oi and, and the bumblers. We do learn that, that there is an even bigger purpose to them that they can fucking sniff out these storms, which is crazy. The stark blast. And they get, they get incensed by it. I mean, that's animals are incredible. You know, the, the stark blast has a few interesting characteristics. One, it triggers a reaction to the Billy bumblers who seem to be the only creatures that can, sense it right Two, it becomes unseasonably warm mm-hmm. and then three it feels like i interpret this as a remnant of a nuclear winter that mm-hmm. still exists in this world mm-hmm. where every once in a while a nuclear winter will come it gets really really hot and then it pummels down to such cold that's so quick with so much wind that literally destroys everything yeah, in I mean, its path. shattering trees from the pressure yeah from the drop in pressure so it builds to this world that I feel like Midworld is very much a post-apocalyptic world. The world of Arthur Eld is the world that hobbled out of a nuclear annihilation. Yeah, climate of the old change people. has happened. 
absolutely. <laughs> There's stark glasses. <laughs> Rampant. <laughs> but storms also conjure up images of unpredictability. Right. They conjure up fearsome images of nature. Nature is conquering man and man not being able mm -hmm. to control the environment fully. It's this unpredictable element that figures in in two places. One, that's the Stark Blast that starts this. And then two, it's young Tim who has to encounter the Stark Blast, who then has to solve this sort of a Dungeons and Dragons-esque puzzle mm -hmm. laid by him by the Covenant Man, where there is a tiger and a key and right. a door. Right. And it's like, how do you figure this out? It's a puzzle for his life. And it is, it is literally the most magical we have seen and probably oh, yeah. will see. Oh, I think so. Which is which is also why it makes sense that it happens much later. Oh, well, that it, that the book comes much later because we don't up until this point get a whole lot of. I mean, there's a magical cloth that unfolds itself, which protects them from the Stark Blast. The tiger is actually the wizard Merlin. There's the basin that he uses that reminds me of the like the big um, abalone shell in Harry Potter. And he's got okay. it when he has to force Dumbledore to drink all the water. Like that's what I, that's the thing I noticed. Like he's got this bin that like he, he just grabs water from that. We can magically kill everything, sanitize it and then see your future, which he waves with an old gear shift from right. an old car. Right. It, it was a, 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 was it a dart? I believe yeah, a, a Chevy Dodge dart. Dodge dart. Dodge dart. Yep. Which like you think about that and you're like, <laughs> but, but that begs a question. Actually, it's interesting. We bring this up because, Again, it supports our running theory that we currently in the world that we live in, in our reality, are the old ones. Which is kind of wild to think about. This is the one of the first times where I was like, wow, we, we must, we're fucking ancient. Like, this guy uses a Dodge Dart gear shaft as a wand. How much further away from our reality is this? I mean, presumably there was a nuclear apocalypse. That's what I, I read. Sure. They blew each other all up. Um, and the world, there's still, there's still a few species that haven't really recovered genetically from the mm -hmm. mutation. But for the most part, there's been a recovery. And there's been like one kingdom that's propped up called Gilead right. out of this. Right. And do you think that, here's a, here's a question we haven't really talked about. I mean, do you think that this story of young Tim and the covenant man, does that happen way before Roland? Does it happen like during Roland's time? Is this a common story? Cause the way I looked at it was, this is like a bit of a, an old tale that's been passed down from generation to generation, which would mean that we're super fucking ancient. See it's to me, it's like, it's like the story of Exodus. Mm. The story of Exodus in the Bible where, uh, depending, and this is not meant to offend any religious beliefs, most historians think is like kind of uh, not really too accurate, but at the same time has some historistry to it. Yeah, sure. It's not completely ahistorical. Sure. It has some elements of truth to it's it. Fucking the, violent, that's for sure. The ancient Hebrews did leave in Egypt, live in Egypt. They mm -hmm. did leave Egypt at some point. Um, and certainly they did come up with these commandments um, that, you know, came down from Moses. Right. So it's a lot like that, where a lot of that story has been passed down verbally for generation to generation. 
where who knows what's real or what's not mm-hmm. real, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, it is a foundational story to certain people. And, you know, I think 500,000 years from now, where we don't have paper, there might be some form of the Exodus story floating around sure, still. Sure, It might look very different. Right. It might feel very different. The names might be different, but there might be still a version of that. Mm-hmm. And I feel the, the village of tree, uh, you know, I mean, there's just so many clues that it's not real to me. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's, or not that it's not real, that if whatever was real has kind of folded into myth. Like sure. that magical blanket. Well, I think, but I think Gilead is folded into myth, period. I mean, I think... Except Roland lived there. Except, right. So right. Roland did, like, so we know that's a re- was a yeah. real place. And I think what's interesting is, and this isn't, this isn't to take away from the, the reality of that situation, but it does feel to me like, yes, Roland lived in Gilead, but like Gilead to this point where we are in Roland's reality, people think it's not real. People think it is of the past. I mean, he's the last fucking gunslinger. So to me, I see it a little differently, actually. It's a little more... I see it as being a, a real story that happened in Roland's past that he's embellishing and sort of projecting some of his own experience onto. But I also well, no, well, I, see I wanna, where you're coming from. I want to get a point of clarity. Yeah, so definitely. Do you think this story is about Roland and then he's just telling it as this. No, I think that, I think that this is a story that Roland connects to and that there are a lot of similarities between the, the challenges, trials and tribulations that young Tim has to go through, especially with the covenant man, because I do see the covenant man as being the man in black. I think that story has become such a diluted thing in this reality that I think Roland has also Roland has lived for, I mean, we've talked about this. I presume thousands of years that all of his stories and his own reality have sort of melded into one. So it half and half. Yes and no, Derek. Yeah. I, yes I don't, and no. And I don't think there's a wrong way to interpret no. it. Cause to me, the, the question at hand is, Hey, did this story tree, did the village of tree actually happen? to Roland and in, in Roland's world, or is it just a fairy tale? And to me, while that is an interesting question worth debate, it is also the wrong question in certain respects. Mm-hmm. The right question is, is why does this story matter to Roland? Sure. And it matters to Roland because it's about a, someone isolated out there in a hostile, threatening world who finds their courage and overcomes all of the yeah. obstacles at and all And he odds. saves his mother, which is one thing that Roland was not able to do. It's about a young boy bonding with his mother and able to overcome this evil person who infected their family and hurt the family dynamic. A lot like Martin. Very much like Martin. Mm-hmm. and be, But in this instance, they're able to overcome and become a happy and healthy family again. Mm-hmm. So it's very much about that as well. And the other thing is that you know, Roland's nemesis, Randall Flagg, mm-hmm. does pop up into this. And whether Randall, Flagg, whether the story in Tree is real and Randall Flagg was there or Randall Flagg isn't and it's not real, it's a fairy tale, what matters is to Roland, it's Randall Flagg. Right. That Randall Flagg has always been at the opposite end of all of the misfortunes that he sees. Right. That Randall Flagg is always there um, there's always a Walter. There's always a John Farson, the good man. There's always a Crimson King. 
and that to Roland, these all blend into one like horrible person mm -hmm. there to fight the line of elves, there to snuff out civilization. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that it's this guy in the way Roland tells it is no surprise. It'll always be this guy, whether it was literally this guy, whether it's history, whether it's mythology, I think we're right. It all blends into one thing. Sure. And like it used to for us before we had the ability to write down what happened. Mm. That's exactly mm. how we passed on our histories, which is through songs and myths and right. stories. And you know, legends. what's funny. Something just popped into my brain. The scene in the very first book when uh, the man in black and Roland are having their palaver and the man in black shows Roland time and space, which makes me feel even more like, I do, I do think it was the man in black and that he was there and because he's just so we know so fucking little about him that I'm almost compelled to believe that it's real. I almost want it to be real because it, it clarifies and it justifies the way I see the man in black. He's very manipulative. He's a great talker. He really knows how to spin a situation. That's like a fear of mine. Like people who are, who can influence me so easily. I'm easily influenced, honestly, <laughs> but like somebody who can be that insidious about it. So maybe it is my own projection about like things that I fear myself, but I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I yeah, well, I don't, you're right. There is no right or wrong answer. There, and, and there is. You know, you read it and you initially grappled, grappled to the idea that this is like a real story and yeah. more of a history with a little bit of myth peppered in to fill it in. Yeah, definitely. And I felt the exact opposite. Right. It's mostly a myth with a little bit of history peppered in. Right. You know, I'm like, to me, I'm like, what does this say about Roland? And you're like, but hold on, this guy's always been there and he's a real tangible thing. Which makes and me feel like it's less about Roland and more about the man in black. That this story is actually giving us more... And now it, now it makes me think about the comment I made earlier about how people were pissed off about how the way thing, certain things ended. But we can't get there right now because it hasn't happened. Because we haven't gotten there yet. Because we haven't gotten Because we're still on the path of the beam. But we should try to remember to bring this up when we talk about that because I do think it's about the man in black more because Stephen King needed, needed to add a little bit more fuel to his fire. Well, I'd like to support your hypothesis with a little textual evidence. A sure. quote that I picked out, which I think also has some interesting things. That does give it a feeling that this really is the man in black. This really is Martin the magician. This really is this nemesis of Roland, and he's always been there. He says this to Tim. The first is just King's description of him, or Roland's, if we will, in the meta sense, and mm -hmm. then the quote of the man in black. The covenant man squatted once more in front of his heap gunna, his cloak billowing around him like the wings of an awful bird. They also say what slipped cannot be unslipped, and they say true. An amusing concept called divorce exists on some levels of the tower, mm. but not in our charming little corner of Midworld. End quote. I pulled this out for a few reasons. One, because it references the tower. Mm -hmm. um, two, because it does ground this character a little bit outside of the story of right. Roland, because he's talking about divorce, which is not happening in Midworld, but is happening into other worlds, which makes us think this character's traveled 
to other levels of the tower, yep. which makes us think this might be this age-old nemesis who can hop through different levels of the tower seemingly at right. will. And there's also a moment later on where it's mentioned that he's not the Crimson King, that he's one of the Crimson King's main henchmen, and that basically, in the end, he doesn't matter all that much, which I think is very interesting. Oh, yeah, totally. Then there's also when, you know, Tim is talking to... um He's talking to his school teacher who wears the veil mm. and they have this whole discussion. If he's Merwin or Marilyn, if he is the old wizard that hung out with Arthur Delb and Tim's like, but hold on, wait a minute. Isn't, you know, Merlin supposed to be a wizard of the white. And she says, well, they say that maybe he hung out with some of the wizard rainbows too long. And then he right. went mad. Right. Or that maybe he became obsessed with some of the relics of the old ones and those rotted his soul. But she ultimately does conclude that the Covenant Man is a magician, but not Merlin. And the reason that she doesn't believe that it's Merlin is that because he couldn't be at two places at the same time. Right. And Merlin was supposed to be at certain places when the Covenant Man was supposed to be at others. And in a certain way, I do feel like this is meant to be both symbolic and literal. Like, I do think it is supposed to be like, yes, this guy's always there. And yes, um, there's always going to be a man in black. Right. There's always going to be uh, a Martin. There's always right. going to be a Randall flag. Right. There's always going to be forces at play within the universe that tug and pull at us between things that are both good and virtuous and things that are horrid and evil. Very much duality. And I think that is also a big part of it. So sure. I think it is both literal, but it's also both symbolic. Oh, definitely. And I, I you know, when I say that I think the story is real, Obviously, all story is embellished. Of course. Every single story is embellished. So so I do, I, I think this is a good clarification where we can meet in the middle. Because you're right, it is part, I do think it's part reality, but I do think it's obviously part legend. Right. I think the one that's reality is the Covenant Man. I think every everything else surrounding that is legend. And I think very much the, like, the magical puzzle with Merlin trapped as a tiger, which is awesome, brilliant and really good. But I'm like, you know, at no point in any of this, do we see like a, like an actual D and D puzzle box that you have to solve, you know? And just like Merlin, like the whole, like it's a cool little thing, but I was like, wow, that's pretty random. That's pretty wild. Like, because this is a fairy tale, right? And that's the fairy tale ending, right? Which does not exist. In no. the Dark Tower. No, I don't think so. Right. And, th- and that's where, and maybe that's the reason also why it feels awkward because it's like, well, wait a second. Nothing in this world ends with a happy ending. And if it does, there's always a fucking consequence. Yep. Always. Because the Dark Tower's fucking messy, man. It is. It is messy, messy. It is not easy. It's not clean. All right. Can we uh, pivot to something that I kind of want to talk about? I will first pull out a quote here. I want to talk about like, I feel in for the very first time we get to really see Gilead and the world of Midworld before it's moved on from a commoner perspective sure. in young Tim's. We see some of the commoners in Magus um, and to a certain extent, Susan Delgado is kind of a commoner though. She did own her own lands. Oh, sure. Um, you know, 
but I feel like this is the first time we see some like real simple folk at the very edge of the world and all they can afford is a hut and an axe and a meal. Right. And in that, I think we get some insights into Gilead politics and why I think the affiliation ultimately, I'm going to just say this. I think it was doomed to collapse because if you're, taxing your citizens and you are asking of them to contribute to the greater good, it's incumbent upon you to articulate what that greater good is. Yeah, absolutely. So we pay taxes in America and some would argue whether it's a fair or not fair and whether it's good or bad, which is not what I'm trying to get in here to hear now, but we all would generally agree that like, Hey, it's a good thing that we have interstate highways and air traffic control and airport right. security right. and all, all of these things that we know are the greater good that we pay our taxes for. So here's this quote. This is um, from, this is little Tim. His dad had always called the home place a freehold, but Tim now saw that no cottage farm or bit of land and tree village was truly free. Not when the covenant man would come again next year and all the years after that with his calls of names. Suddenly Tim hated far off Gilead, which for him had always seemed when he thought of it at all, which was seldom a place of wonders and dreams. If there were no Gilead, there would be no taxes. Then they would truly be free. End quote. I feel like the groundwork is laid for a revolutionary sure. to sit there and say, you poor villagers, what the fuck has Gilead done for you? Right. Except make your life harder. What are you paying these taxes for? If you're unable to pay, you get kicked off of your land and you starve to death or live on charity. Right. And you have no other recourse there. And there's a fundamental unfairness that we see that these commoners have to deal with. And it's no mistake and it's no surprise that the tax man is the embodiment of the ultimate villain and bad guy of the entire Dark Tower narrative. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds a lot like the Bible. The tax collectors were the ones that were frowned upon most for that reason, you know, for the reason that, that I think that's why people think taxes are inherently bad because it's like, well, what are you giving me you know, the, the common joke, right? Like when you go over a pothole or something, especially here in Philly, where it's like, oh, yep, there's our tax uh, tax dollars at work. Hard at Hard work. at work, you know? And I, I, I agree. I mean, it, you know, up until this point, we do hear Gilead as being this bastion of of safety and, and control and that they are the government and that, that they rule fairly. And, I mean, you see Roland. I mean, Roland is of that world. But this is one of the first times we see, like, you know, maybe Gilead, Gilead's kind of a shitty place for a lot of people. Oh, fuck yeah. You know? And in our world right now, we live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. If Pennsylvania were to be attacked, Mm -hmm. the American military, the full might of the American military would come to its defense. Right. That's not free. You pay for that. Right. Right? First it would be the police, then it would be the National Guard, mm-hmm. and that it would be the fucking Army, Marines, and Navy, and, and the Air Force, and everyone. Right. If Tree gets raided... It, they, they fuck all. Where's Gilead there? To, like, Nowhere. What do those taxes actually pay for? Also, how far is Gilead from this place? It feels like Gilead... Right. It feels like it's a far-off, distant, as little Tim says, like a fairyland. It feels like a fairy tale. Absolutely. It feels like this really remote, really poor place. Feels like Oz. 
And then, <laughs> and then, but it's ripe for someone like John Farson to go like, you don't owe anything to them. Oh, sure. Fuck sure. all of them. Right, right. You don't have to pay those taxes. Right. All we got to do is fight those motherfuckers. I mean, that's fertile ground for revolution. That's Absolutely. just an easy way. Like you're already being held down. What are you paying all this money for? Your family's been thrown off this farm. You're the, at your wits end. We're fuck them. And you know, I mean, I understand that. 100- this is the first time I was like, again, like is Gilly? I don't know. Like, do I support Gilead? Like, should I be questioning Roland? I mean, we should anyway. Cause the gunslingers are, even though they're cool, they're fucking questionable. You know? I think there is the groundwork for the good man's revolution is being laid in this fairy tale. Because if the fairy tale, the thousands-year-old story, has someone being like, "Uh, Gilead taxes are really unfair, and why are we paying them, and how are they helping me? Well, you fast-forward that by a thousand years of that, eventually people are going to be like, Fuck this. We're going to take arms. Right. People just name it prophecy. They say it's prophecy. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an interesting like avenue into a different part of Roland's world mm. that we get in here that I don't think we've quite captured in the other books. No, I agree. And Absolutely. I think that that's really interesting and it's also really fun. Um, let's see what else you got here, buddy. What else do you have to, to contribute here? I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know if I have much more, you know, it's a pretty short book. I mean, I mean, relative to the other four so far, except for maybe the first one, you know, the thing I keep coming back to is the question that we've always asked ourselves, what does the dark tower represent in this book? And this is the first time where I feel like, it's a legend, it's whatever, is a bit of a throwaway. I don't know how much the Dark Tower itself, other than being mentioned once, really matters in this book. And I wonder if I would feel differently. I think what I might do, actually, is go back and read this when we're done and see if it makes sense in in the way that it was written. Because I think I'll feel a little bit better about it. It is clear to me that this book is about bringing out a closure to the emotional trauma of Roland's past. And it's clear to me that I personally felt a major catharsis when that happened. Oh, right. This right. being my the first time, might, might be this being my first time reading this and hearing Roland and Susanna have their exchange. You know what? I may, because I have the copy of the book, yeah. pull a passage at the end. That I thought was some of, if not, the best writing that we've ever heard. And just to reiterate, these are the last few phrases of the entire book. Roland was silent, looking out the window at the destruction the storm had brought. Yet they had found shelter, good shelter from the storm. She took his three-fingered right hand in both of hers, the she is Susanna. What did she say at the end? What were the words you traced over and over until her letter fell apart? Can you tell me? He didn't answer for a long time. Just when she was sure he wouldn't, he did. In his voice, almost undetectable, but most certainly there, was a tremor Susanna had never heard before. She wrote in the low speech until the last line. That she wrote in the high, each character beautifully drawn. I forgive you everything. 
and can you forgive me? Susanna felt a single tear, warm and perfectly human, run down her cheek. And could you, Roland? Did you? Still looking out the window, Roland of Gilead, son of Stephen and Gabrielle, she of Arton that was, smiled. It broke upon his face like the first glow of sunrise on a rocky landscape. He spoke a single word before going back to his gunna to build them an afternoon breakfast. The word was yes. And that, to me, is why this book was written. Because the word was yes. Mm. He has some level of peace. Not complete peace. Not a Hollywood happy ending peace. But some level of peace between (sighs) him and his mother. Right. And that is something that this character sorely needs. And I think we readers sorely need because his past is so traumatic mm-hmm. and so terrible mm-hmm. from the like brutal upbringing from court to having to kill court with his pet hawk who also dies to every layer of the story up until this point, every trial and tribulation that got him to a point where he'd kill a child to get one step closer to the, the tower. Mm-hmm. This is a moment of redemption. Small, it's not major. Sure but it's subtle and just a little moment of redemption, which to me is the power of the story. It's Mm -hmm. the reason the story is so meta and it comments on itself. Can a story redeem you? Can reliving your trauma, can retelling your pain help you heal? Mm -hmm. And this book says yes. Sure. And I think that's why it makes sense that that it's at the end. Yeah. And that because I don't really want that acceptance from Roland yet, until he gets to the tower. And I think that having that clarification is a nice, it is a nice little button, a nice little bow to the end of a story that never had one. Right. You know, and I, and I do think it's important. It's just weird reading it where we did. That's all. That's my biggest thing. It's in the timeline in order, but thematically, thematically way off, way (laughs) off. Yeah. Way off. (laughs) In retrospect, I would have done it at the end. It's like that weird Battlestar Galactica season where it was like season 3.5 and there were like four or five. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're digging. I'm a big Battlestar Galactica fan. Oh, yeah, baby. Me too. But it's just like there's that one season where it's like six episodes. You're like, wait. What? Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, cool. I love this story. Cool. But it still doesn't feel right. Right. You know? Well, up next, everyone, is Wolves Ooh, of wolves the, the Motherfucking Collar. Wow. We're about to get some get some Callahan. I will say this going into it. I will share it with you, Steve, and all of us um, Wheel of Ka listeners and fans. The first time around, Wolves of the Kala was my favorite book. Yeah, I remember that. I, yeah. And I'm really excited to dive back into it. I want to see if I feel the same way. Well, and if you're interested to, make sure to check out the Amazon link from midnightmyth.com so that you can purchase not only the next book, but also Salem's lot, which will, which is another Stephen King book that will come heavily into play in the wolves of the Kala. Yep. Which I have not read. I'm yeah. doing the stand while I'm doing this. Cause I Oh just, yeah. I, you know, I can't get enough. Stephen <laughs> King. I can't get enough man in black. I love it. So I'm doing the stand while doing this project. Um, we were most likely, I think, 
The plan is to divide Wolves from the Cowl into two yeah, I think so. episodes. I think so. I don't think it's possible for us to read the entire book. However, <clears throat> this episode's coming to you in September 2019. Wolves of the Kala will come to you also in September 2019. Right, correct. Since we backlogged it because of our vacation, we're going to catch up and give you two Wheel of Ka in the same month. I know you're oozing with excitement. Yeah. Well, we are. We're pushing through. We can do it. And uh, until next time, my friends, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.